Hi, this is Eric Henning. Welcome to a special Memorial Day edition of The Financial Wizard. Stay tuned. Welcome to The Financial Wizard Podcast. This is personal finance in plain English for the rest of us. Join us each week as together we demystify money. And now, here's your host, Eric Henning. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me for this special Memorial Day edition of The Financial Wizard. I'm Eric Henning. You know, as a member of a family with four generations of Navy personnel, including both of my parents, my brother, and multiple grandparents and other kin, I have to say that this day is a day that's near and dear to my heart. Um, And not just because of my family connections. This is a time for reflection about more than just uh, helping veterans Uh, more than just supporting our troops. It's about legacy. And we're going to explore that here in just a few moments. But first, what is Memorial Day? Well, in the United States, uh, Memorial Day is distinct from Veterans Day. Veterans Day is November 11th, uh, the anniversary of the end of World War I, the war that supposedly was to end all wars. And it is a day that we celebrate uh, the living. We celebrate veterans. But on Memorial Day, the last Monday in May every year. In the United States, we celebrate the fallen. We celebrate those who sacrifice their lives to protect the freedoms that we are supposedly holding dear, that we are trying to protect and cherish and maintain. Um, And uh, we celebrate their dedication. We celebrate their loyalty, their sense of duty, their willingness to do uh, what needed to be done, even at the expense of their own lives. That is what we celebrate today. So it is not appropriate to uh, wish a veteran uh, a happy Memorial Day. That's not what this is about. And uh, we'll explore a little bit about what it means to really support our troops um, and if we're really doing that when we say we're doing that. But how can we celebrate the fallen? Well, I think the first thing is to recognize the sacrifice, to recognize the hundreds of thousands of American soldiers who have passed away, and sailors, and airmen, and uh, Marines, and members of the Coast Guard, and the other uniformed services um, who have fought in tremendous wars. And not just, by the way, not just combat against um, in military battles. Um, Let me take a moment to highlight one of the uniformed services that frequently gets forgotten in all of this, and that is the United States Public Health Service. This is a branch of the uniformed services. In fact, they have their own medical school in Bethesda, Maryland. That is why the head of uh, the public health service is called the Surgeon General and wears a military uniform. It is a branch of the military. And it was created in response to the tremendous epidemics of influenza and cholera in the early part of the last century. And uh, there were many, many heroes in the public health service who died fighting infectious disease and fighting those battles, uh, trying to campaign for better sanitation, for immunizations, for uh, a wide variety of things that we take for granted today with our incredibly long lifespans, especially compared to people just 100 years ago. So I do want to put a shout out to our friends at the U.S. Public Health Service who sometimes get forgotten in all the shuffle uh, just because they don't go out and fight Nazis uh, doesn't mean that they're not important, and I want to give them their due. 
but it's a day to contemplate that sacrifice. And what does it really mean? How can we really honor the fallen? Well, I think the first thing we can do is, is be grateful, is, is feel that tremendous gratitude that we are rich and free and alive all at the same time. And that historically is kind of an anomaly, uh, especially for as long a period as we've enjoyed in America. Um, and another way we can honor them is to uh, make sure that that freedom and that safety extends to every one of our citizens and everyone who sets foot in our country. Uh, one of the ways we can honor the fallen is to try to make sure that freedom and justice actually do prevail in this country. And uh, and those of us who are part of that effort, I applaud you. Um, you are carrying on the legacy. That's why um, they made that sacrifice. Another thing we can do is to tell their stories. And a little bit later in the program, I'm going to tell the stories of a couple of people who served fantastically in their own way. I remember the first time I really understood or even started to understand, and I'm not going to pretend to really understand it, having not served in uniform myself, I can't pretend to understand what people go through in combat. But the first time it hit home for me, the first time I actually knew someone who died in a war was back in the early 1970s. My brother had gone to uh, boarding school and his roommate was a guy named Scott Varney and Scott had a low lottery number and went to Vietnam right after high school graduation. And within a year or so, he was gone. He'd been killed in action. And he's on the wall and he's buried in Arlington. And that shook me because although I didn't know Scott well, he was a real person to me. War suddenly be hit home. It suddenly was personal because it wasn't just a faceless bunch of people. And every time I go onto a military base to do a presentation, every time I go through the gates and I see these, these enormous Marines and Navy guards and MPs and and people, these human trees with baby faces, as um, uh, Christopher Titus says in one of his famous routines, um, guys, you, you know, they, they come up on your heart and you're like, whoa, you're big. And then you look at them and they're, they're like, they're not shaving yet. And you're like, oh, that's adorable. Um, and then you realize just how young, young these guys are, these women are that we send out. Every time I see them, I'm reminded of Scott. And there's nothing like that first time when you when you realize somebody you know has died in a war and they're not coming back. So we need to tell their stories and feel that gratitude. And we need to build on their sacrifices by, again, by doing everything we can to make this country the best it can be. And one real way that we can show respect for the fallen is by helping their families. And later in the program, I'm going to tell you exactly some practical ways that you can do just that. Because this is, after all, a financial program, and it wouldn't be fair if I didn't talk a little bit about money. But let's tell some stories for a second. Um, my parents were, were both naval, naval officers. My father passed away about a year and a half ago. He was 91 years old. He had nothing left on his list. He was a hero. And he died well. He was born in 1925 near Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and grew up in a family that was disrupted by tragedy. His father died very young, and he was raised by his mother, 
who was a widow for 67 years. She worked as a clerk at the local bank, and if she'd been a man, she probably would have been president of the bank. But as it was, she bought a lot of stock in the bank and ended up retiring very comfortably. Thank you very much. But his mother and his grandfather raised him. His grandfather was a person of note, Professor William Britt Clark. He was the founder of the marching band at Louisiana State University, and I believe one of the co-authors of the school song, even though he was blind from birth. I didn't say it was a good marching band. But we have a lot of stories about Bill. We we have stories I'm named after him. My middle name is Britt. And uh, we have stories about how he used to ride the horse to work until they took the bells off the traffic signals. And growing up with that example, a blind man who uh, never refused help if it was offered, but never asked for it. Uh, that was that had a profound influence on my dad. and And being raised by a woman who in a time when women were still just barely above property in the eyes of the law and the eyes of society, she was making her way in the world and providing not only for her own family, but for the children of her sisters who had passed away. So that's where my dad got his ideas of duty. And of course, World War II broke out in 1939 abroad and in 1941 here. My dad was 16 years old when the war broke out and he just graduated from high school, but he was too young to join. So he joined a program at the time called V-12. And V-12, for those of you old enough to remember it, was a program designed to generate more officers with a recognition that we were going to need them, particularly after the war, because people were getting killed and we needed trained officers. So uh, unfortunately, LSU didn't offer the V-12 program. So we had to go down to New Orleans and go to college at the dreaded, uh, despised rival, Tulane. And so he did three and a half years at Tulane. And then one semester away from his engineering degree, my dad, Harvey Sidney Henning Jr., gets called up to the Naval Academy, where he has to go through all of that all over again. Well, it wasn't that tough. He'd already done the classwork, so he breezed through the academic part of it, because at that time, the Naval Academy wasn't the quasi-university it is today. It was, in fact, merely an engineering school to teach sailors what they couldn't learn at sea. And so he did very well, graduated in that he was called up in 1945, the war was ending, and he was graduated in that very old class of 1949. He uh, became a pilot and a navigator, and he ended up um, in occupied uh, Okinawa, serving in that area. And then when the Korean War broke out, he flew some of the very first jets off of carriers in Korea. And uh, then came, and then something terrible happened. His wife, he was married, and his wife passed away, leaving a four-year-old son, my brother. And he wanted to raise his boy but he had a dilemma. And the dilemma was he was on the fast track for flag rank. He could have been an admiral, but in order order to do that, you have to command a ship. And in order to command a ship, you have to be out of the country for an extended period of time, a year or two sometimes. You can't raise a child doing that. So he went to his commanding officer and he said, "Um, is there some way that I can stay in the service and still raise my son? And his uh, CO said, well, yeah, there is a program. Uh, it's brand new. Uh, it has to do with him. He pulled out his paper and he looked at it and he said, something, it's a, it's a master's degree at University of Pennsylvania, Penn. 
go to Philadelphia, get a degree in uh, nuclear physics. But then they won't let you out of the country because you'll be one of the few people with a degree in nuclear physics and they'll be afraid that the Russians, remember this is the height of the Cold War, that the Russians would kidnap you. You'll never make captain. The best you can do is retire as a commander. My dad said, I'm okay with that. So he went and became one of the first people in the world to get a master's degree in nuclear physics. They sent him to Monterey, to the language schools, to learn as much German and Russian as he needed to read the intercepts for the intelligence. And then they sent him to Point Magoo to when it was Pacific Missile Range Command. That was when they were monitoring the Russian subs just off the coast of California. And he met a woman there who was a Lieutenant JG. And she had come up in a different way. Her father had been a college professor. First, he had been a medic in World War I, and then he got a degree in anatomy and physiology, and he became a, a football coach and a, an anatomy professor at a small college in Springfield, Massachusetts. And then he went to um, Ashland, Wisconsin, and then World War II broke out, and he volunteered for the Navy, and his family moved to California, and he trained medics. That was my grandfather, Arthur Lewis Jem. And my mother, Marilyn Francis Jim, uh, her brother went into the Navy. She, her sister went into the Navy and she went into the Navy after two years at Occidental College, uh, the same place that graduated such notables as Stan Freeberg and Barack Obama. Um, after two years of junior college, she went to, she finished her degree, got her bachelor's and went to officer candidate school in Newport, Rhode Island. And then she was assigned to the coding board at Point Magoo, where she met a dashing young um, lieutenant named Harvey Sidney Henning Jr. They fell in love. She adopted my brother, and she was immediately told that she had to resign her commission. Because back then, if you were a woman and there was a minor child in the house, you were not allowed to be an officer. You're not allowed to serve. You had to leave. So she resigned her commission and spent the remainder, uh, and has since spent the uh, her life so far, raising her family and doing that part of her duty and experiencing what it's like to be uh, not merely a military officer, but also a military spouse. She's, I'm happy to say that she's alive and well and 85 years old and living in Southern Maryland. So uh, yes, um, she's doing very fine. So they got married and my dad, after various adventures, um, ended up as all intelligence personnel generally do in Washington, DC, where at the Pentagon, he became the Navy's top expert on the Soviet space program in the 1960s. And when things were declassified, he used to give me information to go to show and tell Russians are going to launch another satellite. And, uh, he retired in 1967 and, uh, we stopped moving around. And I was very lucky. I mean, I didn't move. We didn't move around nearly as much as a lot of my friends whose parents were in the military. I, I went to a few different elementary schools, but we stayed pretty much in the D.C. area. And, uh, uh, and then he went to work for defense contractors. And in the 70s, he ran a program at the Naval Ordnance Lab in White Oak, Maryland, called the HEL Project. H-E-L stands for High Energy Laser. It was the very beginnings of the first laser targeting system. He brought it in on time and under budget. And that was the beginning of missile defense. So I like to say that um, he helped win the Cold War because the because even though we didn't actually have and still don't have an effective deterrent in terms of defense against nuclear missile attack, the Russians didn't know that when President Reagan sat down with 
Premier Gorbachev in uh, in um, Reykjavik. And so I like to say that maybe my dad played a part in putting the Joker in President Reagan in the poker hand at Reykjavik because the Russians thought we were playing chess, but it turns out we were actually playing poker. Such are your heroes. People who work behind the scenes, the people who, in the case of some agencies, don't even have a name on the wall. They just have a star. But there are people who know who they are and they know their stories. And now you know a couple of those stories. Uh, that's one of the things we can do to honor the fallen. Even though my dad didn't die in combat, in fact, he refused to be buried at Arlington for that very reason. He want, he knows that he well, he knew that uh, space is getting tight at Arlington National Cemetery, and he wanted that space reserved for those who had actually died in combat. But my point is this: you have someone in your family, or know someone who has served. You know someone who has fallen, or or know someone who is very close with someone who has fallen. Find out those stories. Tell those stories. Read those stories. Find that limited edition, privately self-published book in your public library or historical society with the letters from this soldier to his wife during World War II or Korea or Vietnam. Read the stories. Attention must be paid. I'm Eric Henning. Welcome back. Well, on this Memorial Day, it's a shorter episode. I didn't mean to ramble quite so long, but it reminds me of something we need to think about. And this has directly to do with our finances. What is your legacy? What is mine? Remember, there are only seven things we can do with money, right? We can earn it. We can spend it. We can borrow it. We can save it. We can invest it. We can protect it. And we can give it away. If we give it while we're alive, that's called charity. If we give it after we've passed away, that's called legacy. And a lot of people have said you should do your living, giving while you're living, uh, so you're knowing where it's going. Uh, I understand that. But we want to think about legacy. One of the ways that we can um, add to our legacy, one of the ways that we can multiply the effectiveness of the money that we have is by supporting those causes that are important to us and doing it while we're alive. That can have a huge effect and an impact that lasts long after we're gone. I remember being in Paris in the summer of 1983 doing street magic and staying in the Salvation Army Hotel for Women in the 17th district. Um, and uh, it was uh, it's a long story. I got special dispensation, but it's it was a, a hotel that was built and donated uh, by a very, very wealthy person of faith who uh, wanted to support the Salvation Army. And it was built in the early 1900s. And it now is a hotel that houses battered and abused spouses uh, from what is largely a um, uh, very difficult neighborhood in Paris, the 17th arrondissement. Uh, but it's a beautiful hotel. And it has Tiffany uh, stained glass chandeliers and Tiffany mosaics. And it's just, I mean, it's absolutely a, a beautiful example of Beaux-Arts, Art Nouveau, decorating and architecture. Um, it's not merely functional. It is gorgeous. And that's a legacy. You know, I may never know that person that donated it, but their work lives on and is helping people to this day. And that's something that we can do. 
That is something we can do by donating our time. You know, everybody who spends time teaching English as a foreign language or helping kids learn how to read or do math, that's part of your legacy. It doesn't have to be money. You don't have to have a lot of money. And if you're young or you're not in a position to donate financially, there are things you can do with your time. Um, Recently, there's been a terrible flood in Ellicott City, Maryland. For the second time in two years, the old town part of the city has been virtually destroyed. If you'd like to help, you can go to helpellicottcity.com. Ellicott City is spelled E-L-L-I-C-O-T-T, city, helpellicottcity.com. I just mentioned that in passing. If you live in Maryland and you know the situation I'm talking about, something you can do to help. But when we talk about the military, you know, it's easy for us to talk a big game about how we support the troops. But do we really support the troops? Are we really telling the truth? Are we are we on our representatives? Are we nagging them to stop the horrible slide in military pay and benefits? Are we petitioning our representatives to reform the Veterans Administration and, and improve their tremendously difficult track record with providing just basic medical care to our veterans? Are we, um, are we making sure that our representatives know how we feel about that we only want to send troops in harm's way when it's absolutely necessary and not just to score political points? Believe me, as somebody who grew up in a military family and who had the privilege of actually being in the room with some of some people that you read about in your history books, I can tell you that there is no one who wants war less than career military people, because they, more than anyone, understand the nature of what that means. So how do we actually honor the troops? How do we honor the memory of those who have fallen? Well, one of the ways is we can support their families. And I'm going to recommend three organizations, and their links are going to be in the show notes. And these three organizations, well, four, I'm going to make it four organizations, who are that are absolutely terrific. They do a wonderful job, and they do slightly different things uh, from a slightly different uh, angles. Uh, they're all worth supporting. Uh, my plea to you is pick one and give what you can today. The first is probably the best known, the United Service Organization, United Services Organization, the USO. Since World War II, they have been helping the troops, both active duty and the families of the fallen and the families of active duty service members. And they are a, an organization with tremendous, all these organizations have tremendous oversight and accountability and use their, their donations very, very wisely. The USO is tremendous. I commend them to you. Second is Operation Homefront, which helps military families of all sorts uh, here in the United States. And um Again, these are this is a group that I've also done fundraisers for them, and I can tell you from experience that they take their job very seriously, and they want to really um, honor the sacrifices that military families make. There is TAPS, the um, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. I've mentioned that on the podcast here before. It is perhaps my favorite military-related charity, and they help the families, specifically of the fallen, not just here in the United States, but in the UK and elsewhere. Um, it is a favorite charity of um, Prince Harry uh, and uh, the Duchess of Sussex, and I would highly recommend them to you. They do phenomenal work. And finally, 
um, a relatively newer organization, Folds of Honor, which provides scholarships for children of fallen servicemen and women. Uh, again, these links will be in the show notes, and I highly recommend that you support them in whatever way you can, whether it's by donating time, talent, money, uh, whatever you're able to do. That is one way that we can honor the memories of those that have fallen. So thank you for listening. Thank you for allowing me to share my feelings in my heart. And we're going to end now with a little music to give you the opportunity to meditate on the sacrifice of our fallen military personnel. Thank you. I'll see you in a couple days with a new episode. I'm Eric Henning. Thank you.